All right, we are studying the life of David. We are going to spend the entire season doing that. Uh, and we are in 1 Samuel. Uh, I have a few comments to make on chapter 16 before I migrate into chapter 17. Uh, but uh, as we've been studying, we saw that Saul fell away from being submissive to God. Instead of submitting himself to God, Saul lifted himself up, cared greatly about what the people would do, and he violated God's will in two very poignant episodes. First, he insisted on doing the sacrificial ritual himself instead of waiting for Samuel. And then, secondly, when he was told to go in and destroy the Amalekites completely, every man, woman, child, and livestock, he didn't do it. He didn't do it, and instead uh, decided to keep the most valuable uh, possessions there on his own. Uh, and his excuse was that the soldiers did it and that he was going to use it to sacrifice to, to God. Uh, and you see the famous words of Samuel uh, from God that I, I, decide, I desire obedience. I desire obedience, not sacrifice. And that's a, those words resonate to us today. Uh, and that so many of us have get, gotten tied up into, into basically ritual sacrifice, meaning we go to church. We think that by going to church on Sunday or just going to Bible study, we're satisfying God, and yet we live reckless lives, reckless lives, uh, not caring about the way God really wants us to live, doing our own thing. And so you see what happens there. So the kingdom is taken from Saul. Uh, and, and what we've studied is that even though the kingdom will be taken from Saul, it will take 15 years from the time David is anointed to the time that David will take over as king. And we talked about the 15 years, and the 15 years basically being significant because God shows that even when you are chosen, that God decides that you may not be ready for the assignment. All right? You may not be ready for the assignment, even though it is within the perfect will of God that he has work to do in our lives. And this is an important lesson that we talked about last week. And so David, even though his heart was right with God, even though he loved God, he needed to learn how to be king. He needed to learn how to lead the people. And that would take 15 years. Uh, and during those 15 years, those were hard years, as we will study. Those are years uh, that, that David, uh, David would be pursued by Saul. And, and so uh, these, are, these are hard years. And so as we see that, David, David being pursued by Saul for 15 years, some of you might say, well, why does God do that? Why does God put David through that? Why doesn't he just, he anointed him, why didn't he just make him king? Because he wasn't ready to be king the way God wanted him to be king. And that's the lesson in your life. If you're waiting to, for God to, to use you in some capacity, then you haven't seen that call yet in your life. I assure you that, it, that God will at some point address that when he believes that you're ready. What does that mean? Have you fully submitted to God? Is it about God or is it about you? What I find that in many of us, it's often about us. You know, we want to serve God, but we want to do it on our terms. We want to go where we want to go. We want to do it in the way we want to do it. And while you do that, I can assure you God is not going to use you. He will not. It's only when you say, Father, I'll do what, I'll do what you want. I'll go where you want. I'll say what you want uh, until you call me and separate me out, Lord. 
and, and that's how I want to live my life. And so one of the verses I want to focus on in chapter 16 before we move on is I want to focus on First uh, Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that's David, in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now, in the Old Testament, you will see that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, uh, is conveyed from time to time on the patriarchs. They receive a special anointing. The Holy Spirit comes down upon them. The power of God comes down upon them. It is not the uh, prevalent universal Spirit of God that will go on in the church from the day of Pentecost in Acts. That's very different. This is a one, once only time while the patriarchs are serving God, that God will invest his power on them. Now, it's just as interesting that God can take that spirit away, as, as you're going to see in the next verse, verse 14. Now, the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, let me, let me clear that up, because I think that's a transa uh, translational issue. God doesn't send evil spirits. God is holy. God is perfect. He is not the origin of evil. The origin of evil is Satan. What that means is God puts a protective hedge around his people. He puts a protective hedge around his people. But when the spirit of God is taken away, that protective hedge is taken away. And so what happens then is that our own inclinations now lead us into areas where we shouldn't go, but it's our own personal inclinations. Saul had these inclinations in his heart. This, the protective hedge of God is taken away. And so what do you see? What do you see is that he's tormented by an evil spirit. Now, I also believe that in this case, uh, it wasn't just an evil spirit. It probably was mental depression. He was probably going through a lot of, of mental torment, understanding. You can imagine it. You've, you were at the top. You were the king. And now God has taken it away from you. Uh, and so we will see that he will bitterly, bitterly oppose uh, David. Um, and so you see how God's will takes place uh, and, and how God moves forward. But there's an interesting point of this as you see the, the hand of God even in this as it relates to David, reading verse 15. Saul's attendant said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes upon you and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and brings him, bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse in Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul, entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor-bearers. And so here's, and then you see it. Then Saul sent word to Jesse saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. 
Whenever the Spirit from God came upon Saul, David would take his harp and play. The relief would come to Saul. He would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Do you see the hand of God? How am I going to take a shepherd boy and teach the shepherd boy what it means to be the king of this country? How will he learn all the accoutrements that he needs to have in order to be king? I'll have Saul bring him in. I'll have Saul ask him to come. Do you see how God works? I mean, think about it. In, in the eyes of man, in our own way, what would we be doing? Oh, how are we going to get in there? We have to, some subterfuge. We're going to have to go here. We're going to have to go there. There's a million plans. It'll not work. We'll have to send him to some university, and then we'll have to get him an internship, right? Well, you understand. Oh, he's not. He, how are we going to get him out of this? How are we going to get him away from this sheep? Oh, no problem for God. I'll have the king bring him in. I'll have the king bring him in. So you see, I mean, I want, uh, this is so impressive to me as you see the hand of God, the hand of God orchestrating this. And just like the hand of God orchestrated the life of David, because David was a godly man in submission to God, God will do the same for you. I mean this. God will do the same for you. When you serve God and when you submit yourself to God, you will be amazed when you see the hand of God in your life opening the doors and closing the doors where he wants you to go. Powerful, powerful passage. Uh, what a message this is to us that the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, would design to do this. And you know, it's one of the things that I've studied and as I've read more and more and I realize the magnificence of God. You know, when you study astronomy uh, and you'll listen to these brilliant uh, astrophysicists, who will talk about the magnitude of the universe. Uh, somebody once said, which is interesting, that uh, the, the universe right now is so big, and this guy posited it as proof that there couldn't be a heaven. The universe was so big, this, this genius said, that, that when Jesus died, even if he traveled at the speed of light, <laughs> listen to this, he still, today, would not be at the furthest stars. So there couldn't be a heaven. Boy, what a genius. As if God is constrained to travel at the speed of light. Honestly. As if God is constrained to travel at the speed of light. Do you see how, how puny our minds are? And so when you take this all in, and you see the vastness of this universe, the creation... The one thing they all agree is there's no other place where there is life. Oh, they conjure up these formulas. It's possible here and it's possible there. And as they begin to do the science and, and the experimentation, they no, not there. No, no, no. Too much ammonia, too much methane. It's the, the planet's a little too big. It's a little too small. It's a little too close to that star. Guess what? There's only one place in the universe where God has created life, right here on earth. This is his creation. For whatever reason, he has decided to create us and to allow us to exist. We are his firstborn. He has created us, and he has given us salvation through Jesus Christ because he loves us so much. And so when you see this, when you see this, I want you to be able to convey this message to your friends at Christmas time. Many of you are going to be sitting down at Christmas with people who don't know Jesus. 
You have an opportunity now in, in, a, in the most loving way possible. Notice what I just said. Loving way possible. And this is going to be hard now because even at this time of year, you're going to come about with people that are going to have political differences. Let me give you one word of advice. All right? You want to spread the, Jesus, the message of Jesus? Nix the discussion on politics. Okay? I know that's hard. I know that's hard, especially now when, you know, you know the, your, your liberal friends uh, are suffering. That some of us want to just, yeah, I want, like to, look, I'd like to make sure they got the message. You don't have to do that. Isn't it more important that you give them the message of Jesus? Seriously, give the message of Jesus. And so here's what I'm saying to you. When you have these family gatherings, when you have these things, and I know it's going to come up, I'm going to say to yourself, be restrained and find a way to talk about God. Find a way to talk about what the Lord has done with you and what he's doing with you and how you, and how you found a group of men who love Jesus and you come together and do this. And give them the website. Tell them about the broadcast. Do the kind of things that are ultimately going to impact people's lives. And then bring them here, as so many of you have done. Bring them here. Uh, because here, it's not about an institution. We're not about raising up uh, an organization. I told you, I don't, I'm not a denominationalist. I am not. I am fully invested in the gospel of Jesus Christ across denominational lines. The Holy Spirit is in residence in all kinds of churches throughout the world. But he's not necessarily in every church. Okay? There's a difference. And so now we're going to look at, 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 at the life of David unfolding in one of the most famous episodes in the Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Let's begin by, by reading it, and we're going to see something incredible take place here. Verse 1, Now the Philistines gathered their forces of war and assembled at Sokah in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes, Denim, between Sokah and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. Let's understand what this picture is like. It's two mountains, two mountains. The Israelites are on one, the Philistines are on the other, and the battlefield is going to take place in between in the valley. Uh, and the Philistines are an incredibly aggressive people. They are far more advanced in the art of war than the Jews. They had effectively moved forward with the use of iron in their weaponry. And so they had a vast array of iron weaponry. And so this was a formidable force. Uh, and so you see them here and you understand how, how critical this is uh, and how the people of God are going to be terrified. Verse 4, a champion named Goliath who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. I believe that translation, that he was over nine feet tall. Okay? I believe that. And the reason I believe that is I know from other theological sources that Saul was about six foot seven. One of the reasons Saul was selected as king is he was so much taller than everybody else. And so here's, here's this guy, over nine feet tall, uh, and he came out of uh, 
a, a group of people that were giants that go back to numbers. We'll talk about that uh, in, in terms of that group of people. There were people that the Jews faced even when they went into Canaan, Joshua. You remember they went into Canaan uh, the first time, and they came out, and the thing was, oh, this is a great place. It's filled with, with honey and grapes. Oh, it's an unbelievable place. But the spies at the same time said, but they have giants. Oh, we will be eaten alive. We will be destroyed. These are the, this is the same group of giants genetically that we're talking about, even though at this point now it's about 400 years later. Uh, now, Joshua killed many of those giants as they continued to reside in Canaan. But you want to see this this picture taking place, I want you to recognize that Goliath was a giant. Over nine feet tall, verse five. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale, armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels, which was 125 pounds. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His spear uh, bearer went ahead of him. Uh, let's understand some of the, the numbers here that we're seeing. We're seeing a national military crisis erupts out of fear of what they face. And so as we study the factual basis of Goliath, what we see here is that only by God's power would Israel survive. There would be no way man, on his own, humanity by itself, would survive this confrontation. Uh, and so you see the, 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 the battle forces taking place, and, and this, this Goliath, who was almost 10 feet tall uh, from other theological sources, he wore armor that weighed 125 pounds. You think he was big? You think he was strong? The armor weighed 125. Even the bronze head of his spear weighed 15 pounds. Can you imagine? That's the spear head. He had the most advanced weapons of the day. These giants were the sons of Anak, and they, you see them in Numbers chapter 13. Let's take a look at Numbers chapter 13, because I do this because I want you to understand there's a factual basis for this. Numbers 13. Verse 31, but the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. This is now as they go into Canaan. We can't attack these people. This is going back now 350 years earlier. They are stronger than we are, and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they explored. They said the land we explores devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. Underline it. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Now, the Nephilim is a misunderstood concept, but many people, many theologians, believe that the giants came from a race of people in which early in time, those angels who had fallen from heaven, who were cast out of, out of heaven, actually uh, copulated with humanity. And that the race that came forward from them, the Nephilim, was the result of these giants. Uh, now, 
I can't tell you specifically that I believe that, that I think that's possible. We know today that, that uh, the fallen angels cannot have any interrelationship with humanity, but perhaps there was a time when that did take place. Whatever, what you see here is something far outside of the norm. When the normal human being at that time, if you look it up, the average human being would maybe be five foot five or five foot six. Now you're looking at a guy who's almost nine or ten feet tall. Can you imagine what that had to be like? The fear? Um, and, and so you see this story uh, and you realize, well, there's a basis for it that had gone on hundreds of years earlier. They were aware, aware of this. Um, and so as you see this, uh, you, you realize what a, what a contentious feeling this is. And so Goliath, verse 8, stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Uh, am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, and this underline this, because this is, this is where he signed his death warrant. This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Can you imagine? Defying God. I defy God. Go ahead, who's your God? It's like uh, Edward G. Robinson, right? Uh, now, now there's Goliath, this giant is defying God. Uh, and so you see here, as Goliath defies Israel, uh, they are filled with fear and despair. So uh, Goliath taunted them by saying they were going to lose uh, and that whatever efforts they had would be absolutely futile. And so now David will step out in this scene. Uh, and it's just amazing. He periodically would go from uh, Saul's palace back to tending sheep. He would do this. Uh, and I want you to realize how godly that was. He didn't give up the role, the original role that God had for him, that he was a shepherd, that he would do that. He didn't just say, well, now I'm in the palace. I no longer have to tend sheep. And the scripture tells us that he periodically would go back and tend the sheep. And so you'll see that now uh, in verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The first one was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. I love that, that scene of dedication. For 40 days... The Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Just imagine that. Forty days of seeing this guy repudiate them. Repudiate their God. Can you imagine how that had to be? And now you're quaking in fear. You're quaking in fear. We're doomed. We're doomed. We can't, we can't, we can't face this evil force. Uh, and this is the lesson for you to understand. That you're right. You can't 
face that evil force on your own. But when you are in the branch and the vine of Jesus Christ, when you submit to God and you ask God for intervention, then God will intervene. He will be. It's God's battle, not your battle. Too many times we have been fighting God, our own battles. Let God fight the battle. Step back and say, Lord, this is your thing. You direct me. You tell me what I have to do. So now, verse 17, now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. He's worried about them. His father's worried about them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock with his shepherd loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine, the champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Can you imagine? So there they are. They're out in the front lines, and Goliath comes out. He repudiates them. Uh, he dismisses their God, and what do they do? They run back. They run back. They're fearful. It's too big. We can't fight them. I'm scared. Does that sound like things that you're going on in your own life? Problems that you have? You have Goliaths in your life? We all have Goliaths in our life. All right? Some of them are called health problems. Some of them are called financial problems. There's not a person here that doesn't have some Goliath in their life. Family issues. Okay? Family issues. That's the Goliath in your life. And so you see here, you see the personification of evil as this giant repudiates God. Uh, and you see it. Now verse 25. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give his daughter a marriage and will exempt his, family's family from his father's family from taxes in Israel. Well, if I had known that I'd be exempted from taxes, I probably would have gone out. <laughs> That was a pretty big promise, right? You guys can understand that. No taxes from now on? Sign me up. But you, you, see, you, you see what happens. The interesting thing, by the way, where's Saul? Where's the six-foot-seven guy from Israel who's our king? He's back. You understand? He's back at the back of the line. I'm going to make all these promises so you guys, you guys, you look good. You should do it. You see, you understand? You see what happens when, when you lose the spirit of God, when you no longer become a leader, uh, when instead it's all about you. It's not about you. When we're Christians, it's about God and about others. And you see that here. You see the results very evidently of, of what happens here um, when, when the spirit of God leaves us. Uh, it's, it's pretty sad. And so what you see here is Israel filled with fear. And this is a picture for us of people who are not trusting in the strength of the Lord. You got that? Not trusting in the strength of the Lord. And this is why I say to you that you need to be continually in a state of prayer all day long. 
You need to, when you're driving your car or walking or, or, or in church or just shopping, wherever you are, you should be constantly speaking to God. Lord, I love you. Lord, be in charge of my life. Lord, keep me from temptation. Lord, lead me to where you want to go. You understand? I said this on Sunday, and I'll repeat it. You don't have to go into a closet for three hours with a prayer shawl. Okay? If you can do that, God bless you. I find that I can't even pray on my knees longer than 20 minutes. My knees hurt. All right? And so what happens? After about 10 minutes, I'm not thinking about God. I'm thinking about the pain in my knees. Because we're weak. We're frail. Even the strongest amongst us have these issues that we have limitations based on our flesh. But if you have this kind of communication with God, that you speak to God as your friend, and you talk to him as your friend. He will be your friend. He will be with you. He'll be, he'll be with you in business. He'll be with you in recreation. You just speak with him. I find even, that, even when I'm playing golf, those few times a year that I get out and play golf, especially when I hit a bad shot, Lord, have mercy on me, Lord. <laughs> have mercy on me. You know, last week, last week I, I told some guys, that last week uh, my, my dog, I have a small Maltese, and he, and he wouldn't stop barking. You know, he wouldn't stop barking. He saw some construction across the lake. He wouldn't stop barking. And finally, and my son was visiting. He was in another room, room. And finally, I just said this prayer. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. I'm about to kill the dog. I'm about to kill him. And my son, who hears this in another room, starts bellowing with laughter. Because he understands how low I am. How down I am, and you understand, you see, that's the kind of prayer life you need. That even in the most mundane circumstances, that you ask God to reach out and give you mercy and help you, and he'll be there. He'll be there for you. So you see this, this bellowing giant, the fear resonating amongst the Israelites, uh, and, and, and you see that this is not the same Saul that you would have seen before. The soul, when the Spirit of God rested on him, would never put up with this. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 11. This is right after he gets appointed. 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 5. Verse 4. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept out loud. They were being challenged by the enemies of God. Just then Saul was returning from the fields, behind his oxen, and he said, what is wrong with the people? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, sent the pieces by messenger throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they turned out as one man, when Saul mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel numbered 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, by the time the sun is set hot tomorrow, you will be delivered. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we will surrender to us, to you, and you can do to us what seems good. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last night of the watch, they broke camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them. 
until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. That was the Saul under the power of God. Now the Saul without the power of God is weaseling. He's in the back. He's offering prizes to people where he should be the leader. This is what happens. This is what happens when you don't submit to God, when you come away from God. Um, and this is a powerful lesson to me as you see it. Um, and so here in this role, Goliath, and this is important, Goliath is imitating the taunts of Satan. He is the accuser of the brethren. Where did I get that from? Turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Verse 10. Now I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. You want to know the other name of Satan? The other name besides, the acu besides Lucifer? It is the accuser of the brethren. What do I mean by that? You're weak. You have a lousy faith. You don't really trust in God. Your life is miserable. Look at you. You say you're a Christian, and look at how you live. Look at the thoughts that you have. That's Satan. That's Satan. Somebody told me today that, they, that they, somebody was inspiring them. Some person that they knew said that they regularly spoke with God. And, and this person said to me, you know, I said to myself, gee, I don't speak with God like that. I don't hear God articulate. Listen, let me tell you something. I never heard an articulated word in my life. I had strong thoughts that I believe God put there for me, but I don't believe that I ever had the verbal verbalization of God himself. Now, what does Satan say? You see, Satan puts thoughts like that in your mind to make you say, oh, there's something wrong with me. There's some deficit in my life. There's some spiritual failing in my life. And what it does is it drags you down. And this is what you see here with Goliath. Defying God. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of your God. Your God is measly. I will eat you and drive you apart. And you see this, you see this here, and you recognize what goes on, what goes on in the world. This message, everything we study in Scripture operates on multiple levels. Multiple levels, meaning what? There is the physical story, the historical st story, there is the spiritual story, and then there's the allegories, the metaphysical, the metaphorical. In other words, God is demonstrating to you on a number of levels spiritual truths. This story about Goliath doesn't just resonate because it took place a thousand years ago. You learned it in Sunday school. It was interesting. It was great to see a young shepherd boy kill this giant. But now you understand that you face Goliaths. You're old, and you've seen these Goliaths in your life. You know what I'm talking about. And so now you have these Goliaths of health. 
Goliaths of finance, Goliaths of relationships. And, and what God is saying is the same God that took that shepherd boy and allowed him to defeat that Goliath when everybody else was afraid will be with you. He's with you when you submit to him, when you give him your life, when you say to him, I will give to you. And so David expresses his outrage over these taunts by Goliath. You see that in verse uh, 26. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And by the way, the terminology there, uncircumcised, meant not in covenant with our God. You got that? Not in covenant with our God. It wasn't merely the physical circumcision. It was the spiritual circumcision. He's not part of the kingdom of God. He's not part of the family of God. He is not in covenant with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what will, what will happen? What will we do? How will we stop him? And so, verse 28, when Eliab, David's oldest brothers, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. All right, let's tee it up. Let's tee it up. You think your friends, the people that surround you, are necessarily going to be happy for you as you step forward for God? You think so? Oh, yeah, that Joe, look at him now. Look at him. He's down at St. Matthew's house. He's helping to feed the poor. Look at him. He's at the jail. He's doing ministry to the jail. You think they're happy? You think they universally are happy? What you are going to find, and I'm sorry to say this, I'm sorry to say this, is that many so-called spiritual people still will be jealous of how you are serving God. I'm sorry to say that. That's a fact. Why do you think C.S. Lewis wrote that famous line in the screw tape letters when the senior demon tells the junior demon who's just fearful because one of his patients who he's been trying to lead to hell winds up joining his church? And the senior demon says to his nephew, the junior demon, fear not, my dear nephew, we do our best work in church. We do our best work in church. What does it mean? It means that there are spiritual enemies. And so even when, when you are serving God, sometimes that's the most evident time. This kid had to be the most righteous kid you could find. His heart was right with God. He loved God. And there he is, these older brothers who thought most likely, who is this kid? Who is this kid that God has selected? And they probably disdained him. And you see it here. You are conceited. Do you think David was conceited? I don't think there was a bone of conceit in David's body. He loved God. He burned in anger to see God being blasphemed by this pagan. And yet his brothers didn't understand that. And so what that means is, and this is a lesson for you, that as you get closer to God, as you try to serve God, there will be people in your life, and I'll say it, possibly even family members, possibly even family members who are not going to understand that God is speaking to you, that God is dealing with you. And so here's the deal. Some of you 
Some of you are being called to greater service. And maybe your wife is not supportive. Maybe she doesn't share the same vision. Or maybe your kids don't support it. Maybe they think you're getting a little kooky. All right? You understand what I'm saying? And maybe they'll start to say some negative comments about you. And maybe they'll ca start calling you behind your back a holy Joe. Right? You're one of those holy Joes. Who do you think you are? You think you're so good. And you know that when we are Christians, we put our face in the dust. Not one of us thinks we're so good. We know that we're only called because Jesus died on the cross for us. And so you see here, this, is, this really burns my heart when I see this. I felt this in my own life. I told you that. Some of the worst things that have happened to me in my life occurred by Christians, so-called Christians, some of the most horrible things, the nastiest things. Uh, and what happens is even good people, even good people, even so-called saved people can wind up being used by Satan, can wind up being tempted, and wind up doing hurtful things. Keep your eye on the cross, folks. Got that message today? Keep your eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't want you to be dissuaded. I don't want you to be dismayed because the group around you doesn't applaud. We do what we do not for applause. I don't care that any other human being doesn't applaud me or doesn't understand me or says, who does that guy think he is? I'll tell you who that guy thinks he is. That guy thinks he's a sinner saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's who that guy thinks he is. That's who that guy thinks he is. He's a sinner saved by the blood of Jesus. And don't let these other naysayers get into your life and seek to destroy you and take your mission away from you. Take your ministry away from you. You're not interested in the applause of men. You're interested in the cross of Jesus Christ. I want you to leave here recognizing that. And you see this story as it resonates with me so powerfully. When I see this, his brothers, his own brothers, his own family. That's how Satan knows where you're the weakest. You like that? How's that? Let's sit around the dinner table with family. How about that? Now let's take out the carving knives. And instead of carving the meat, how about we carve you up? All right? You think this, is, this, is, this comes out of the blue? A lot of you are going to face things like this. I want you to be aware of it. And I want you to know that when it happens, it's Satan. Because you're trying to get closer to God. You're trying to get closer to the cross. And that's how Satan acts. And you see it here, the blasphemer, the accuser of the brethren. Uh, I know how conceited you are. Verse 29. Now what have I done, said David? Can I even speak? Oh, poor David. Can you imagine this kid? He's out there in the tending sheep. I can't even talk. I can't even say these things and you're accusing me? Really? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Let's stop right there. Let no one be dismayed because the forces of evil are arrayed against Israel. I believe God is with us, and I will stand with God. That's the lesson number one for you today, that you need to be that kind of person in a world that doesn't get it, even in a church world that often doesn't get it. You will be God's person. You will stand for God. And here he is, this young shepherd, all right, without a portfolio, 
Not a soldier. Not a soldier. Not a mighty man of God. Not a mighty man of war, rather. But this, this young shepherd says, uh, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy. And he has been a fighting man from his youth. And that's the, that's the, the result of humanity. Humanity looks at the physical aspect and says, you can't do this. Who do you think you are? You don't have the gifts. You don't have the talents. You don't have the ability. You never went to a university to get a degree in this subject. And you think now that God has got some ministry for you? Who do you think you are? Some of you have heard this, right? Some of you have heard, you don't have the proper credentials. You, don't have, you never went to a seminary. I don't see a master's of theology behind your name. That's right. Let's take a look at the Bible. How many of the first 11 guys had masters of theology? All right, maybe you have a better translation than I have. Okay, maybe you have a better translation, but I can't find that degree in my Bible. All right, and I'm not putting the degree down. The, the degree is fantastic. When you unite the spirit of God, when you unite the spirit of God with the, with the education, what a powerful force it is when it comes together. But what comes first is the spirit of God. You got that? Not the credentials. You could have all the credentials in the world, and if you're not called by God, you're going to fail. You're going to fall on your face. All right? And so you see this, this picture here uh, as, as Saul pronounces humanity's verdict. You can't do this. You can't do this. You're not able to do this. All right? And, so, uh, um, and David replies, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. The uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Can I get an amen? amen. All right. All right. What does this prove? Here's what it proves. It shows you faith in action. Faith in action. Now, many of us go to the gymnasium, right, every day, and we lift weights, we work out, or we're running miles, working out, trying to lift up this body, right? Trying to perfect this body. Maybe I can get a few more years on it, you know? God knows, you're living Naples. You want to squeeze every ounce of juice you can, right? <laughs> out of this life, they want to drink. When it comes time to leave, they're going to drag you kicking and screaming out of Naples, right? So you're doing everything you can to lift up this physical body. How about the spiritual body? All right? Here you see the example of faith. This kid understood that his faith in God was so great that in his communion with God, he sees a lion and a bear both about to devour the sheep. And this 16-year-old kid kills a lion and kills a bear and takes the sheep out of his mouth. Is that good enough for you? Is that good enough for you? You think that's faith? That's faith under turmoil? That's exactly what it is. God is demonstrating demonstrating in the most profound way 
that that exhibit of faith gives comfort. You know God will be there with you. He will be there with you. He will sustain you. He will be part of you. And so it's not an accident. You don't go out with blind faith. You go out knowing God is with you. Oh, wow. What a way to live your life. To know that wherever you go, God is with you. Whatever comes down, God is with you. When you go to the doctor, God is with you. When you look at your banker, God is with you. When you go to work, God is with you. You have faith to know that the living God is there with you. That whatever you are undergoing, God is there. He will sustain you. He will lift you up. He will empower you. He will never let you down. And this young shepherd boy, the future king of Israel, knew that his God was there with him because he saw him there with him out in the pasture. And now this godless, this godless Philistine, this man blaspheming God, was nothing more than just like that lion. Just like that lion. And just like that bear. We're going to continue this in January. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you, Father. I thank you, Father, for the words that we have heard today. Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you so much for the lesson, for the life of David, as we see what it means to give ourselves to you, to have faith in you, Father, that you will be with us. And even when we stand surrounded by those, even in our family, who don't lift us up, but instead, find ways to knock us down. Lord, we ask you to give us strength to keep our eyes on the cross, not to deviate, to know that we stand with you, that you are with us, just like you were with David, with the lion and the bear, and you will be with him as he faces that giant and ultimately will bring him to his knees. Lord, protect our people. Give them the most beautiful holiday of all, Lord. Surround them with your presence and bring them back safely in January to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.